Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Well, greetings to uh, new listeners as well as longtime fans. I'm Member of Parliament Garnet Jenis. Welcome to my podcast, Resuming Debate. Uh, today we are having a full-length interview uh, with a, a very special person. Uh, I, I always find it uh, inspiring to talk to people who are involved in a struggle for freedom and democracy in their own countries. Uh, it helps me understand my my knowledge, uh, pardon me, expand my knowledge of the world and, and understanding about things going on in other places. Uh, but it also inspires me uh, in my own work here in Canadian politics. Uh, so often, I think we have the temptation to take our freedoms for granted. Uh, but it is uh, it is necessary for us to renew our commitment uh, to struggling for the protection and preservation of freedom and democracy in our own country in every generation. And uh, in, in that work, I find it inspiring to talk to people uh, who have a real sense of the fragility of, of freedom uh, because they are they are struggling for that in countries where fundamental rights and freedoms are not protected and uh, and and recognize. So uh, today we're going to be delving into the situation in Belarus. I'm very pleased to be joined by Valerie Kavluski. He is the uh, he is the head of the Cabinet of Representatives, representative of foreign affairs uh, within the cabinet of Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya. And for those of you who have not been following Bel events in Belarus, don't worry. Uh, we're going to give him an opportunity to uh, to really explain what has go gone on and, and bring you into uh, an, an awareness of that situation. And I know uh, as we as we hear from him, as we as we talk about the situation, uh, you will be uh, you will be inspired and motivated uh, to, uh, to 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 support the people of Belarus in their uh, courageous struggle. So, uh, Mr. Kavluskaya. It is great to have you on. I'm sorry for uh, butchering the pronunciation already, but thank you so much for joining us and talking to uh, to my listeners. And good morning. Thank you very much for for the invitation. It's an honor to be here. Okay, um, excellent. So so uh, let's just start from ground level here. Uh, I um I met with some representatives of the of the Belarusian diaspora when I was in Warsaw a few weeks ago, and we talked a bit about. Uh, Belarusian history and identity, uh, emphasizing that I think some people mispronounce it as Bela, Belarusian, but I was told no, it's Belarusian. Uh, important to emphasize that, uh, uh, that that Belarus is not is not part of Russia. It has a distinct distinct identity, distinct culture, and that's really part of the freedom struggle because we're seeing the way in which the Kremlin is trying to exercise more and more control over Belarus. So just to tell people a little bit about um, about uh, Belarus's identity, what it means to be to be Belarusian. Oh well, thank you for for the question. It's really important one for for the context, kind of to understand uh, what what the country is, what what the people are. Uh, so Belarus dates back uh, to ninth century. This is when we have first uh, cities uh, registered in chronicles. Uh, since then, it was uh, part of a very active uh, life uh, in Eastern Europe. Again, back then, it was, of course, not Eastern Europe. Uh, it was just, uh, just even probably not Europe. Uh, but uh, it was uh, uh, it was part of a very uh, active life uh, when tribes grew and uh, ethnic uh, ethnic. Uh, 
uh, formations started appearing uh, on the map. Uh, this is we, for for several centuries we've been part of uh, of the Kievan Rus. Uh, this is uh, this is what we call Ukraine now. Uh, we were uh, kind of this. Uh, united in the same uh, state formation uh, in a way. And then uh, Belarus became uh, the, uh, the beginning of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. And again, it was not called Belarus back then. It was just uh, several uh, principalities living here and there, uh, but it became uh, beginning of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, uh, a state that has grown considerably and uh, uh, stretched from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea and united uh, uh, the tribes from Lithuania, uh, for, uh, the people from, uh, uh, from Ukraine, Belarus. Uh, in the 17th century, it was uh, in 16th century, I'm sorry, it was it joined with, uh, with Poland and uh, formed the confederation of, of uh, the Polish kingdom and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. And all these years, all these centuries, of course, there kind of was a battleground for many, many wars, uh, mostly with the Eastern neighbor. Uh, mostly with uh, with then Moscow uh, principality. It was not Russia yet. It was just Moscow principality. And until 18th century, it was called like that. This is when it became Russia, Russian Empire. Um, uh, but uh, apparently the, the resources of, uh, uh, of the Russian Empire uh, were too significant kind of to withstand the pressure from the East and uh, in the end of uh, uh, 18th century. Uh, this confederation of Poland and uh, and Belarus was uh, uh, partitioned. Uh, Belarus became part of the Russian Empire. Poland uh, became part of uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, and uh, uh, from from that point, uh, for about two hundred years, uh, Belarus was part first of the Russian Empire and then of the Soviet Union. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the specific traits uh, of identity uh, already were forming there. Uh, and uh, we have uh, uh, we had our own language, we had our own culture. Uh, the uh, the religion, which was a formative uh, kind of backbone of any society back then, it was also different. Uh, it was um, uh, mostly uh, Orthodox for 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 some period of time, and then uh, it uh, retained its culture, its ritual, uh, but switched uh, uh, to Vatican. To the Holy See. Uh, so it was a unionistic church, uh, uh, so to say. Uh, in uh, As part of the Soviet Union, Belarus became uh, sort of the, the frontline uh, battleground state uh, for, for several wars. Uh, before, before Soviet Union, it was uh, a major battleground territory for World War I. And uh, World War II, of course, was uh, has had a very serious uh, impact on, on the lives. Uh, about quarter population was uh, uh, was killed uh, in that uh, in that war. Significant number of Jews uh, were exterminated on the territory of Belarus, and uh, Belarus used to be uh, the home for uh, for Jews for several centuries. Uh, and uh, since when they had to leave uh, their home country, uh, many of them came to uh, to Belarus, and actually. Uh, uh, five presidents of um, uh, of Israel uh, come from Belarus. Right. Uh, interesting fact. Um, so in 1991, uh, Belarus regained uh, its independence and uh, it has become an independent state. Uh, before that, uh, it, it had a very profound experience of uh, being affected by the Chernobyl catastrophe. catastrophe. Uh, 
became the state that has been affected more than any others. About two thirds of the territory has been contaminated uh, from the Chernobyl disaster. Uh, at the same time, uh, Belarus, uh, having lived through so many uh, tragedies uh, of wars, of conflicts, uh, of uh, standoff between East and West, uh, it chose to be in, uh, neutral, uh, it chose to give up its nuclear arsenal, and uh, during Soviet times it was one of the most heavily armed uh, territories uh, in the world, uh, uh, including nuclear weapons, and in 1993 uh, we decided that we were giving up. Uh, our nuclear arsenal that we want to be a neutral, neutral territory. In 1994, uh, the first uh, presidential election happened and uh, Alexander Lukashenko was elected in three unfair elections and he remains the only president ever elected. Uh, and uh, during these years, he, uh, he built up uh, this authoritarian and then dictatorial system. And uh, in 2020, during the presidential elections when he was running for the sixth presidential term, People said, no, uh, we don't want you any longer. And uh, they started protesting and Lukashenko had the only uh, response prepared that was violence. And that he, he, he remains committed to this, to this only recipe of resolving the internal crisis, violence, repressions, uh, forcing people to leave the country. Uh, so this is what we're doing right now. Uh, I, we're trying to, um, we're fighting actually to uh, to change the situation, to bring uh, the democracy uh, in Belarus. I belong to the team of Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya. She was a candidate in those elections, and she's believed to, to have won those elections in the first round. Uh, uh, she was under huge pressure. She was essentially forced to leave Belarus the next day after the elections. KGB officers uh, forced her to leave under the threat that if she doesn't, uh, she will never see her kids again. And, and her husband is already in prison. Uh, so uh, she made this difficult choice to go to Lithuania, uh, to Vilnius, uh, where she's based now, and this is where she runs her operation. Uh, she, she came to Vilnius, but at the same time she decided not to give up on the fight itself, uh, since she was so popular and people have trust and belief that she would be, uh, she's the right person uh, to bring change uh, in Belarus. Uh, her objective uh, now is to um, uh, is to bring the country to elections uh, that would uh, allow people uh, to, to choose their own their own next leader uh, who would be transparent who would be accountable and who would be competent mm -hmm. well that was a, an incredible historical overview bringing us right up until the present a crisis and I just say for those who are who are less familiar with the geography if you look at the map it's it's very evident the way that Belarus is kind of uh, again, on that on that fault line, it's surrounded to the to the north, west, and south by uh, by free democratic nations: uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland to the um, to the west, Ukraine to the south. Uh, but then, of course, obviously shares a, a large border with Russia as well. And um, and and uh, Canadians, and we'll probably get into these comparisons. But Canadians are are very familiar with, for instance, the the struggles in Ukraine. Uh, to uh, push back against similar kinds of things, uh, uh, autocratic uh, regimes supported by Russia, but then de a popular democratic movement uh, that, uh, that in the case of Ukraine successfully overturned that, uh, that regime. So let's talk more about the, about the, current, um, the current crisis, um, but just, just before that about the uh, elections that kind of led uh, to that crisis. 
uh, I'm I, I'm fascinated by by just the um, the willingness and the courage to run in an election where you know the deck is is uh, designed to be stacked against you, right? Where it's you have a you have an autocratic regime that is set up to simply use elections as a cover uh, for its own exercise of power, and yet um, and yet uh, Ms. Tsekhanovskaya. Uh, was able to to connect with people in spite of of the designed barriers, and uh, you know I think in, it, we, we can say with with clarity won that election, uh, even though the regime is is lying about the results. So, what is that process like of of uh, trying to run an election, and uh, what what kind of role did you have in relation to that campaign? And um, and tell us a bit more as well about. Uh, about uh, Ms. Tsiakonoskaya, this this uh, this person that has really captured the imagination of uh, uh, of Belarusians and and uh, and been able to lead this movement. Uh, as I mentioned, first presidential elections we had in 1994, and those were free and fair elections. And Alexander Lukashenko back then won. Uh, he was a very populistic figure. Uh, he was uh, um, he was sort of portraying this energy, this will to uh, to destroy the establishment. Uh, if I could bring some parallels here, no no parallel, of course, is absolutely accurate. But uh, if you if you think about Trump. Uh, this this is very much like Lukashenko, some somebody who appeals to uh, uh, so probably to the darker side in people, kind of uh, uh, let's uh, uh, let's put down those who who are stronger and let's uh, bring up those who are sort of weaker and let's fight the establishment because establishment is strong and so on and so forth. And uh, uh, all the elections, parliamentary elections, presidential elections, referenda that he had to change the constitution were considered to be fraudulent ever after uh, when he came to power. So we never had uh, normal elections, uh, competitive for transparent process where votes would be counted, where the candidates would have the same, um, uh, the same access to media, for example, the same ability to, to campaign. Uh, so by 2020, it was very obvious that whoever participates in elections is, uh, uh, is preparing him, himself or herself for something for a very serious challenge and the, the risks are there. Uh, at the same time, uh, when, when we saw, um, and back then I lived in Washington DC, I worked in the World Bank uh, and I could see from, uh, from across the ocean that the energy uh, that has appeared among people was very different from, uh, from other uh, campaigns. And that probably explained, uh, was explained by, uh, by the fact that we had absolutely new candidates, absolutely new figures. And one of them was Sergei Tikhanovsky, husband of uh, Svetlana Tikhanovska. Uh, he was a popular blogger. He was just going out, talking to people, kind of recording their concerns, kind of posting videos in YouTube. So uh, a fairly normal operation, but he also became uh, interested in having a short and political life. And uh, he announced that he will be running for president. Immediately, he has accumulated a lot of interest among people. Uh, it, he was followed by several more uh, figures, uh, also very interesting, also very new, like manager from the bank, uh, head of the uh, most successful banks uh, in, in Belarus. And so the campaign started looking like very interesting. There was a lot of intrigue there. And uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, the authorities did not play, uh, wanted to play it safe. And uh, the, the response to being safe is to arrest everybody. Uh, 
And so this is exactly what happened. Sergei Tikhanovsky himself was arrested. Uh, he was not allowed even to register as the candidate. Uh, another one, Valery Tsipkala, uh, head of the High Technology Park, was forced to leave the country. And Viktor Babarika, the head of the bank, uh, was put in prison uh, under the, uh, the pre pretense that he, is, he has committed some economic crimes. Uh, so Svetlana, uh, what she did, she filed papers. Uh, she started a bid for president uh, instead of her husband. Uh, she said like I, she was pissed off uh, by the whole thing that she, that her husband was not allowed to do that so she filed the papers just to prove the point that um he he deserved that and uh, miraculously uh, she was registered uh, and uh, this is i mean miraculously because uh, authorities decide who who could be registered and who would be not and so this is not based on formal criteria objective criteria but on their will they underestimated her because she's a woman. And because she's a woman, uh, before that, uh, she had been a housewife. Uh, she, um, she was bringing up uh, two children, one of them uh, with some uh, disabilities. Uh, so she devoted herself completely to the family, but nevertheless, she decided to kind of uh, to defy uh, the whole process, to defy all the risks, and uh, she was registered. And she ran a very successful campaign. Uh, a campaign that uh, assembled tens of thousands of people uh, in Belarus, something that hasn't happened uh, in, in decades, literally in decades. Uh, and uh, she, uh, she is believed to have won the vote, uh, but at the same time, the elections were rigged to such a degree that it was impossible to establish who actually has won, uh, because uh, kind of the irregularities were massive, systematic, and uh, uh, even before the vote, uh, even before the voting days, Valentina was saying like, I am here, I am participating in these elections only to have new elections. I want to defeat Lukashenko, but I want to, uh, to organize new elections in half a year so that people would be able to choose their next leader. Uh, she said like from the very beginning, and she maintains this position until now, that she doesn't want to be the president. Of Belarus. Her only task is to have free and fair elections in Belarus. And this says something about her as well. Uh, kind of going uh, to your next question, like who is Svetlana Tsikhanovska? What is she like? Uh, she is uh, she's not a professional politician by design. Uh, she has never tried. She has never wanted uh, to be a professional politician, but uh, she became by, uh, by the destiny, I suppose, if you could say, and that that was the destiny that picked her uh, among many others and uh, she has demonstrated a lot of principled approach uh, a lot of uh, responsible approach uh, she could uh, you could say like she could say like i don't want to do this any longer it is too risky it is too difficult this is not my cup of tea and i'm leaving this but no no she she is staying with people she uh, is carrying this uh, uh, this mission forward uh, and uh, she has, to me personally, she has become a proof that all of us have something uh, significant, something uh, uh, the, the potential we carry, each of us, uh, is, is absolutely astounding. Uh, but uh, we, we should create conditions for this potential to, uh, to be revealed and to grow and to, to use it. Uh, since August uh, 2020, when she was forced to, to go to Vilnius, uh, she has um, created a very strong operation uh, with, uh, with massive international outreach. Uh, she has made about 40 international visits 
since then uh, she has met leaders of uh, major uh, major european states states uh, uh, she met with president biden over this summer uh, she just just last week just yesterday actually we were in brussels for the eastern partnership summit and she she had meetings with 13 ministers of foreign affairs with six prime ministers so this is the level she operates and this is unthinkable if you think about the foreign policy of Lukashenko, who has always been isolated, who never had a chance kind of to communicate, to work at, at such level. Uh, but Zidane Tsikhanovska continues to be true to her word, that she wants to bring the country to the elections. And uh, this is what she's been doing uh, since then and until now. Uh -huh. that, that is such an incredible and uh, inspiring story. I mean, there's, there's a few things you said that really just jumped out at me. Uh, one was you said you know, she was pissed off that uh you know for for many people uh who who aren't political they see something something happens to them that um that is wrong that angers them and it motivates them to to jump into the fray um you know there's some people that that kind of conceive of their political rise from when they're uh when they're uh when they're very young um but then there's 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 there's, there's people that uh, are pulled into it because of some some event um and I, I think the, this, this is such an important point you said about how the regime underestimated her and they underestimated her because she was a woman. And, and the impression I'm getting from how you describe uh, her, her rise, her popularity, is that uh, the way she was uh, dismissed, underestimated by the regime and yet uh, achieved something so significant is an inspiration to, to other people who have been uh dismissed ignored uh uh put down by the regime uh to say that uh that that uh, uh your your prior vocation your uh, level of connection your level of political experience isn't what defines uh, your ability to um your ability to shape the future of your country is, is that right in terms of the, the kind of popular effect and, and the, the way she's exciting people about being involved in politics who maybe have thought it impossible before absolutely yes uh this is exactly how people perceive and uh, uh kind of many of us are still in this belief like that something like this is happening uh because uh, the she is uh she's a woman she's a politician but she is uh, defying a dictator who's been there for 27 years and uh, let's be honest he's still strong like this is not that he is kind of falling to pieces uh he's yes he's insecure he's angry he's furious he's envious of her but still he, he's still strong he has support of russia and uh, this uh, helps him to uh, to move to move forward and so if you compare these two figures uh, a woman who uh, who's only kind of serious function in life was to take care of her house and of her two children and her husband. And here you have somebody who has significant uh, uh, experience, not just running the country, but also defying all other, um, the pressure from the West, the pressure from the East. Uh, uh, he has survived many crises like that. And this is not the first time that he's facing this challenge. And uh, nevertheless, uh, she uh, she has demonstrated, and she's a she's a proof, everyday proof that we can do so much more than we think we uh, we, we we can do, and uh, we we should not underestimate ourselves as well. Just like uh, some some hostile authority, some hostile force underestimates us, we should not do this to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a big tool of uh, of dictatorships, right? Is is to 
diminish the individual and and get people to to to, to try to get people to 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 think they don't have the capacity to uh, to push back. Uh, it also, for me, maybe just as a as a side note, demonstrates. Uh, uh, that being a full-time parent is a is a noble vocation, and the the things that you do in that vocation, you know, uh, pre prepare you for for whatever whatever might uh, might come next. Um, I I wanted you to share a little bit about just kind of the comparisons to the situation in Ukraine, uh, seeing seeing the movement in Belarus at, for for many Canadians that were involved in or supporting. Uh, the um, the revolution of dignity uh, a number of years ago in Ukraine, a similar situation, Russian-backed autocrat um, that was uh, that was overthrown through a through a kind of popular movement seeking freedom, democracy, and and, and human rights. Uh, I wonder if if you think some of those comparisons are are applicable, or what the differences are maybe in the in the situation of uh, of, of Belarus and Ukraine. Um, obviously, some similarities in terms of the relationship to, to Russia as well. Russia doesn't uh, doesn't I should I should say that the Kremlin, the Putin regime, doesn't doesn't respect the um, the autonomy, the distinctiveness of, of Ukraine. The the same seems to be true of, of Belarus. And I, I guess what, one other comparison is that uh, that following the collapse of the Soviet Union, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in exchange for a, a commitment to protect its uh, territorial integrity right so it's a similar history around disarmament as well so so how do you see those those uh, those comparisons with ukraine in terms of the moment you're in and some of that that history yeah well we have a very rich history with ukraine uh, this this is our brotherly nation uh, even in terms of language uh, we have about 80 percent overlap uh, in vocabulary so we easily understand each other and uh, while you russians would not be able to understand uh, either of us at the same time for uh, for russians uh, for the imperial russians uh, so to say both belarus and ukraine carry a significant uh, value uh, as symbols, as sort of the, because those are the, the places where the, the Russian nation was born. This is how they, how they see us. And of course, uh, the fact that Russia has attacked uh, Ukraine uh, can say uh, absolutely, with absolute confidence that they see Belarus in the same light that this is a temporarily independent territory that should be uh, brought back uh, into, the, uh, into the orbit of, of Russia, uh, into the borders of Russia. Uh, but after the uh, after regained independence, uh, similarly, uh, Ukraine and Belarus gave up uh, nuclear weapons. Their nuclear weapons, and they both signed those memorandums, Budapest Memorandum, on assurance, security assurances. Uh, in return, those proved to be paper tigers. Uh, frankly speaking, uh, kind of uh, Russia did not uh, respect respect those documents, especially in uh, in case of Ukraine. At the same time, we can say that Ukraine uh, has chosen a, a very different path uh, from Belarus, uh, while Belarus became uh, the presidential republic ruled by somebody who was leaning towards Russia. Uh, Ukraine chose uh, to, to head to the West. Uh, it wanted, uh, from the start, it said, like, we want to be part of the European family. And uh, this, they have been quite consistent with this. And uh, at some point when President Yanukovych was in power, uh, he wanted to, uh, to redirect Ukraine uh, to Russia. And this, this has brought about the conflict uh, that we have uh, seen uh, on Maidan in 2013-14. 
and uh, that uh, that brought to the uh, to the territorial losses. Uh, you would say uh, at the moment uh, the attempted annexation of Crimea and then the invasion in Donbas. So uh, speaking about the uh, Maidan and how uh, the protest in Belarus evolved, uh, and uh, I very briefly outline uh, how the protest looked in Belarus after 2020. Uh, so about. 40,000 people were arrested since then. We had dozen, about a dozen of deaths, uh, but hundreds and thousands of cases of beatings, of torture, of rape of people on the streets, but also uh, in, in prisons. So the, the scale of repressions is massive. We have not seen this uh, since Stalinist times. Uh, Europe has not seen it uh, since uh, probably uh, the, the rule of uh, black colonels in, uh, in Greece. Um, so this is this is the line of comparison, uh, but protest itself in Belarus was absolutely peaceful, and this is something that differs is it from the events on the Maidan, uh, and because Maidan was uh, was a very uh, kind of intense standoff, uh, it was a confrontation uh, between protesters and the authorities. In case of Belarus, it would not be possible from the very beginning. If there was such a standoff, uh, Lukashenko would not hesitate a second and would apply uh, deadly uh, military force. Uh, he would just start shooting at people. And this is why people chose to, uh, to run this peaceful protest. Otherwise, uh, people would not go out in the streets in such huge numbers. And we had weekends when there would be 300,000, 400,000 people only in Minsk. But across the country, it could be up to half a million and more uh, people protesting regularly every Sunday. Uh, so, uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, authorities could not cope with this for, for too long, and they decided to, to crack down on the protest, and uh, this has led to all these uh, arrests and repressions. And just uh, two days ago, uh, Sergei Tikhanovsky, who was in prison for 18 months waiting for, uh, for the verdict, uh, he was sentenced to 18 years in prison, uh, which is... Uh, uh, and he, People who were uh, on the same case with him uh, were sentenced to 15, 16, 14 years in prison. Uh, but this shows uh, the, the level of agitation uh, among the regime, uh, that they, they are very afraid of this, but they also want to punish uh, not only Sergei Tsikhanovsky, but also his wife, uh, Svetlana, uh, who has been very successful in sort of mobilizing people and consolidating this position uh, throughout these months. Uh -huh. And, and and so what what are the like formally like on paper what are the charges against uh, against uh, her husband? Uh, that he has uh, incited social hatred. Uh, I okay. don't know what that, what that means. Uh, <laughs> that he has organized mass protests, even though yeah. he was in prison when the protest actual protests started. And that he uh, impeded on the work of the Central Electoral Commission. Uh, and uh, I think there there's one more charge, but that would be similar. A charge sort of in ridiculousness uh, of it, uh, but of course it does not amount to uh, to any any punishment. He was just running his campaign, and uh, he was he was doing what constitution uh, provides for. Um, but uh, this this verdict is completely illegal uh, and uh, does not stand any any criticism at all. Yeah. So you talked a bit about um, the Kremlin's imperialist narrative uh, that that denies the self-determination of peoples, uh, that uh, seeks to suggest that some, uh, some elements of history give, um, 
give Moscow the right to to rule over other other peoples. Um, what are Putin's objectives in Belarus? Does does he does he want to uh, does he want to annex territory, uh, or is this about uh, control? And uh, would you say there's there's complete kind of unity of purpose between the Lukashenko regime and the Putin regime, or are there uh, ways in which they uh, they differ in their uh, in their desired uh, desired ends. Um, definitely, that Russia would like to have Belarus as its own territory, <clears throat> but the case of Crimea and Donbas has shown that can be very very expensive, and uh, this can create a lot of a lot of losses for Russia internationally. Uh, and uh, while Crimea uh, is a peninsula and uh, Donbas is part of the territory. Uh, in the country, in a very kind of diverse multi-ethnic country like Ukraine, Belarus is uh, the full-scale country. Uh, this is the founding state of the United Nations. So to just go and annex it would be uh, kind of absolutely detrimental, devastating to the reputation of Russia in the international arena. But also Belarus will not, Belarusians will not give up. Belarusians will not accept this as, uh, as something normal and uh, and desirable, so there will be there will be resistance uh, if something like this happens. Uh, therefore, Putin chooses a more patient, uh, strategic patience approach and kind of let's increase controls over over Belarus. And you are absolutely right that this is the alternative he is pursuing right now. Uh, he uh, he has used weakness of Lukashenko uh, since uh, since the August of 2020. Uh, he has uh, managed to expand his military presence. Uh, he, recently, they have organized two military training centers uh, on the territory of Belarus. This is sort of like halfway to the military base, like permanent installation of the military base in Belarus. Uh, also, he has pushed these 28 integration roadmaps uh, that um, bring Belarus closer to Russia in many respects, be it economy, be it uh, communications, be it education, be it military, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, and until now, uh, kind of more than one month after these papers were signed, we don't, we still don't know the contents of it and uh, what are the steps that bring these two countries uh, uh, closer to each other. So, for uh, for, for Putin, the the strategy is clear. Uh, he wants to strengthen the controls, and he doesn't care if Lukashenko is illegitimate or not, uh, since uh, all democratic states uh, recognize him as illegitimate. Uh, but he is using this, he is very opportunistic uh, in this regard, and he is using the weakness of Lukashenko to advance his own interests uh, in, in Russia, uh, in Belarus, I'm sorry. And um, Lukashenko, on the other hand, doesn't have anybody to turn to. Uh, so he is forced to turn to Russia uh, for, for support, financial support, political support in particular. And uh, uh, at the same time, he is more afraid of Putin, he's more afraid of Russia than he's afraid of NATO. Uh, he knows that NATO will not invade Belarus. He knows that Canadians will not annex half of the territory of Belarus. But he definitely knows that Russia can do all these things. And he's afraid of this, so he is uh, walking a very, very thin line, uh, trying to sort of to gain as much as possible uh, from, uh, from Russia, but at the same time not to give up too much, uh, kind of to lose his own relevance as, as a politician. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, how does how does he walk that line in an environment where um, where other countries are are quite rightly calling on him to step down and and respect uh, 
respect the uh, the election that took place and um i mean you're you sort of point to this reality that that uh although it is certainly not in the interests of uh of belarus as a nation that it might be in his personal interest to um to to give up everything to just maintain the support of the of the putin regime uh, he is not willing to uh, to give up the sovereignty and independence of those. When he does, uh, he will lose completely his relevance as a politician. And uh, uh, to Russians, uh, the, who see them as very as an instrument, uh, he will just lose any interest at all. Uh, therefore, he uh, he will be struggling not to let it happen uh, in no no possible way. Uh, for many years, uh, the um, Lukashenko was playing this balancing act. Uh, he would come to, uh, to Russians and say, like, uh, I need support, otherwise I will go to the West. And then he would go to the West and say, like, if you push me too strong, uh, I will go to Russia and uh, Belarus will lose its sovereignty and independence. This, this is not the first time he's doing that. And uh, uh, we have learned to live with this and kind of understand his, uh, his very simple but rather effective game. Uh, so at this point of time, while he is signing papers with, um, uh, with Russia, uh, he is also appealing to the West and saying, like, I'm ready for the dialogue. I'm ready mm. for the dialogue. I have created these problems for you, like, for example, the border crisis with the European Union. Uh, uh, but I can be the one who resolves this crisis for you. But all you need to do is just talk to me, uh, because uh, when you start talking to me, you recognize my legitimacy, uh, the facto president, and uh, this is uh, this is kind of the ultimate goal, kind of to be recognized, to be acknowledged, and to uh, to be allowed to maintain this power for, uh, for for many more years. I see. So, so there is. There is some leverage there, potential leverage. Um, uh, you, you mentioned a number of things, uh, including the migrant crisis, that I want to I want to follow up on. But before I do that, um, we, we've seen the the Chinese government uh, working to exercise uh, some influence in um, in in areas that Russia has uh, traditionally conceived of as its sphere of influence, such as uh, as as Eastern Europe, but also um, of great relevance to Canadians, the the Arctic. You know, Russia Russia sees the Arctic as uh, as, as a potential sphere of influence, but we see China nonetheless uh, uh, engaging there. And and uh, so so, what are your thoughts on on China's role and and some of the statements China has made with respect to Belarus as kind of a a third actor that's distinct from the West and distinct from uh, from Russia? How does that fit into the strategic dynamic you described? Lukashenko has tried to uh, to make China his ideological ally for quite some time, because both of them, uh, kind of Lukashenko and, uh, and the Chinese leaders are sort of communist to their core. Kind of this is their driving ideology. But at the same time, Chinese has, have proven to be way more rational than he would like to, uh, them to be. Uh, they're very pragmatic. They don't want to, uh, to speak ideology here and there. They're advancing their economic interests. They're not advancing ideological interests. And that's why uh, China has been rather uh, upset uh, with Lukashenko when, he, uh, when this whole crisis started in 2020. Uh, back in 2015, uh, Lukashenko has promised to, uh, to Chinese that uh, he, would, uh, uh, he would normalize relations uh, with the Western world and that he would join the World Trade Organization. And he failed on both promises. And for, for China, it was very important since 
uh, they wanted to, to use Belarus as this part of the project Belt and Road uh, program. Uh, and uh, also they are kind of investing heavily, they were investing heavily in the uh, high technology park uh, in Belarus. They wanted to use Belarus as the hub, as the sort of a gateway to Eastern and Central Europe uh, to advance their economic interests. But with such poor relations, uh, with such toxic relations even, uh, with uh, its own neighbors, Belarus it has lost uh, a lot of appeal uh, in the eyes of, of Chinese. And uh, they seem to be withdrawing or redirecting their investments to Ukraine, uh, especially in the IT sector, which is also quite, uh, quite blossoming in, uh, in Ukraine. That's why uh, it makes uh, sense for them to, to move in that direction. Uh, and uh, Lukashenko has tried really hard uh, after the elections to attract more attention from China, but Chinese has, have been rather cold uh, to him. Huh. Uh, kind of, they maintain normal diplomatic relations, but when you read their statements, when you read their messaging, it seems that they are not happy uh, about the performance of Lukashenko, especially when we compare, for example, the approach to COVID. Uh, and Chinese, uh, while they were probably the, the country of origin of COVID, at the same time, they have been uh, extremely effective uh, in addressing this, uh, this crisis uh, uh, within their territory. In comparison, Lukashenko has been a complete failure uh, in, uh, in tackling this issue. And uh, we have a very high number of deaths until now uh, in Belarus. Uh, and uh, he's been absolutely ineffective. Uh, so for Chinese, uh, Lukashenko is um, is a riddle. Like what to do next? Uh, kind of they uh, they definitely don't see him as as a valid presence. Uh, he, as a strongman, has failed uh, to quell down the protests. Uh, kind of in the eyes of other strongmen. Uh, so while he claims that he's a dictator, he is a failing dictator in the eyes of Chinese. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's. Um... That, that, that's fascinating. I suppose that that uh, in addition to the the economic factors you mentioned in terms of the failures of the Lukashenko regime, the um, creating create, creating a a sense of ideological similarities between the regime probably isn't in the Chinese Communist Party's uh, party's interest because it it um, in a way it raises the question about if a similar protest movement could could happen again in uh, in China. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if you can now share a bit about the, the, the migrant crisis. This is um, certainly top of mind with uh, folks that I spoke with in, in Poland. Um, uh, I've also, I was also recently in, in Latvia, and there's some impact on, on Latvia, although I think primarily on, on Poland. This is, you know, essentially, this is a, an effort, uh, kind of a, a new, a new uh, weapon that we've seen. Uh, the, the regime in, in uh, Belarus, uh, Belarus is kind of manufacturing a, a migrant crisis for its neighbors by uh, by bringing people from other places and um, and uh, and sending them across the border, uh, and that's uh, caused a, a, a great humanitarian problems for for those those people themselves who've been kind of instrumentalized by this regime. But it but it also creates some real challenges for. Uh, Belarus's uh, neighbors. So, if you could share a bit about the, the migrant crisis and, and kind of how um, how that's being used politically, uh, and what the what the responses and, and the impacts of that have been. 
Well, in the first place, uh, Lukashenko has mentioned uh, to the West uh, repeatedly over years uh, that if uh, if the West pressures him, if the if uh, your democratic countries uh, demand changes, democratic changes, and more respect for human rights, that he would be willing to open the border to all kinds of problems, uh, be it uh, migrants, illegal migrants, uh, be it uh, arms trafficking, drugs trafficking, and even nuclear materials. Uh, he warned that he is he's going to go that way uh, if necessary. And uh, this is exactly what happened. Like when he saw that uh, his, uh, uh, his level of non-recognition uh, remains very high and uh, he, he decided to create a crisis that would uh, serve several needs. Uh, first of all, he wanted to inflict damage on uh, Lithuania and Poland in particular, as those countries who have supported uh, democratic forces uh, more than others. Uh, he wanted to divert attention from uh, from the internal situation, uh, from uh, from the massive human rights abuses and repressions in Belarus, to the border crisis, and he has managed that too. Uh, he wanted to create a crisis that only he would be willing and able to uh, to resolve in the eyes of the West. Sort of like if you want to resolve it, you should come to me and talk to me. And so he has created this leverage, uh, created this space for himself. Uh, but at the same time, uh, he has made some serious miscalculations. Uh, uh, in the first place, uh, he did not expect that the European Union would be so united and would have such consolidated position on this. Uh, they did not uh, give in uh, to his uh, demands. Uh, essentially, they maintain that uh, this is uh, uh, irregular migration. This is essentially uh, uh, human, human smuggling. Uh, and uh, it would not stand. Uh, they refused to recognize him as, uh, as a legitimate president, and they also did not look away uh, from the situation in Belarus. In addition to that, um, uh, Lukashenko has misused, or rather, I would say, abused all these people, bringing them from the Middle East, and uh, he has created a lot of problems, image problems for himself, uh, and uh, now these people, many of those people, Thousands of them are stuck in Belarus, and they have become a problem for him as well. And he, he is trying to uh, get rid of them one way or another, either to send them back uh, or, to, um, or to push them uh, through the border. And kind of, there is still kind of daily reports about dozens of people trying to storm the border in a rather violent way, and Poland is pushing back on that. Uh, but uh, all in all, uh, this has become a very serious challenge that has actually proven to the international community once again that Lukashenko is, is, is very problematic. He is not only an internal problem, now he's a threat to international peace and security. And this is a, an absolutely different quality now for him, because for many decades he tried very hard not to spill over uh, his practices into the bordering states. Uh, he, was, uh, he was just being ruthless within national borders. And uh, for the international community that was a reason sufficient uh, sufficient enough not to not to interfere too much, not to put pressure too much. And kind of, this is your territory. This is your people, as they say in the international community. Uh -huh. At the the NATO summit I was at uh, recently in um, in uh, in Riga and Latvia, there's a lot of discussion about about this category of threats to democratic countries. Uh, as in sub, what they call sub Article Five threats. That that Article Five is an article in the NATO treaty uh, that 
uh, requires a response from all countries if one country is is attacked and attack meaning um, in general terms sort of a tr traditional invasion where uh, where troops uh, of, of, uh, of uh, another country invade. Um, what we're seeing now is, is a lot of these kind of sub-Article 5 attacks, uh, you know, cyber attacks, attacks, infiltration, the manufacturing of a, of a border crisis. And, um, and there's, there's a lot of discussion about you know, how, how does a, uh, an alliance of nations uh, committed to preserving their own security respond to these kinds of sub-Article 5 threats. Do, do you expect that uh, as, as a result of increasing, um, increasing control by the Putin regime, uh, that uh, the Belarus will be a source of some of these, uh, an escalating source of these kind of sub-Article sub 5 types of, types of threats? Um, uh, the, things at the border, but also, um, but also cyber and disinformation attacks and other kinds of, uh, kinds of, uh, of attacks on, on, uh, on democratic nations in the region? Well, it is already a source of such attacks. And uh, the, the border crisis is one of them. Uh, disinformation attacks probably to a lesser degree, but disinformation propaganda are very strong in, in Belarus. Uh, this, is, this is what kind of defines the information field uh, in Belarus, complete distortion of reality. Uh, and uh, also, as I mentioned previously, Lukashenko is willing to open the border to illegal arms, illegal uh, uh, drug trafficking um, or nuclear materials. Um, so this is what he has in the pocket. Whether it works or not, uh, it's a different story. And we have seen that the response of the European Union in particular to the border crisis uh, has been rather strong and rather comprehensive and uh, rather effective too. Uh, also, uh, Lukashenko is not uh, shying away from threatening uh, its neighbors uh, with conventional uh, threats, uh, sort of not sub-Article 5, but Article 5 uh, in particular. Uh, maybe it doesn't go directly against the NATO members, but he, he mentioned recently that he is willing to, to allow Russia to use the territory of Belarus uh, to invade uh, Ukraine from the north. Uh, so. Uh, this is a very serious uh, suggestion. Uh, I would say that uh, Russians did not react uh, to this uh, in any serious way. Lukashenko also uh, uh, declared that he now recognizes the annexation of Crimea, that he now recognizes Crimea as Russia, something that he's been unwilling to do for quite some time, but now he has done that. But he has done also this in a way that and kind of Russians don't know what to say about this. It's uh, it's definitely done under duress, uh, in, and there is not much trust uh, for for his words. In addition to that, uh, Lukashenko has threatened that he is willing uh, to to go to Russia and ask uh, Russia to bring back nuclear weapons to Belarus, uh, which would be a complete and total violation of the non-proliferation treaty, both by uh, by Belarus and Russia. Uh, but nevertheless, he is uh, kind of playing his cards at will, and he is showing that he is losing control uh, over himself and uh, that he is willing to inflict damage as, as much as possible. Part of it can be bluff, but at the same time, uh, we understand that such situations sometimes uh, take control over themselves and uh, they can develop in unpredictable ways. Mm -hmm. We we are seeing a, a Russian military buildup on the border with Ukraine, and a lot of concern about that. So, 
so certainly I think people will will take note of your comments about Lukashenko regime offering offering Belarus as a potential staging ground for uh, for for action against Ukraine and uh, this is certainly a, a, a concerning situation. It underlines a point that I've I've made often in, in the context of, of human rights advocacy that um, that nations uh, where the regime is a menace to its own people, uh, inevitably that same regime is a menace to to other people as well. Um, that that one area where I think we need to to evolve in our thinking about national sovereignty is that you can never expect an authoritarian, violent, repressive regime uh, to to ultimately constrain that violence to within its own within its own borders. It's the it's the nature uh, of a regime like like uh, like the Lukashenko regime uh, that doesn't respect law, that doesn't respect uh, fundamental human rights, that doesn't uh, honor its own word. That if that's how it behaves in relation to the people of Belarus, that's how it's also going to behave in relation to uh, to its neighbors. So uh, we are only safe and secure. Uh, as as other nations, if we also concern ourselves with um, with the protection of, of freedom and the fundamental human rights of the of the people of Belarus, that there's a continuity there. I'd love your comment on on that point, and then I'm going to ask you to to share what you think Canada and Canadians can do to support the people of Belarus. No, well, in the first place, I would like to thank Canada and Canadians uh, for um, very principled support and the very consistent support we have received so far. Uh, that that goes to political uh, messaging, uh, to diplomatic isolation of the illegitimate uh, regime. Uh, this goes also to synchronizing its uh, sanctions uh, with the United States, with the UK, with the European Union. Uh, also, uh, Canada has allocated uh, some aid uh, to civil society, to human rights defenders, to people who have been repressed um, through this crisis. Um, what matters to us most at this point of time uh, is the show of solidarity and kind of staying, uh, staying true to the policies that have been adopted, uh, but also reaching out to people who, who have been repressed, to political prisoners. And uh, this, is, this is what we've been asking always uh, to write letters to political prisoners in Belarus, because uh, to them, uh, this kind of support, this kind of uh, Empathy is very, very important right now uh, as, as they stay behind bars uh, for some, some people for, for more than a year, uh, absolutely innocent people. So they appreciate that. They appreciate this, um, this support. But also staying involved in the international, um, international community activities uh, with the United States jointly with European European Union is sort of the, the front uh, the front organization, the front entity uh, to, to address this issue since Belarus is the neighbor and since it's, it's has been challenging some of the member states uh, in, in the European Union. Uh, so synchronization and coordination of these efforts uh, in all possible spheres from diplomatic isolation uh, to pressure, uh, including sanctions, economic and financial sanctions, and to, uh, to helping people. Uh, this, this all requires synchronization. Of course, we are looking for opportunities to uh, to visit Canada. Uh, Canada is uh, has has shown uh, uh, itself as as a friend of Belarusians, and we want to thank uh, Canadians for that. Wonderful. I I think there are there are so many Canadians who would want to hear more about this story and uh, and connect with uh, with you as well as other members of the cabinet. Cabinet, of course. 
uh, mit Tsikhanovskaya. Uh, I want to just follow up on your suggestion to individuals about writing letters to political prisoners. How do people go, go about doing that? Say uh, someone's listening to this, they say, I want to do this, I want to go right now and find the name and the address. Uh, is there a is there a particular website or or a place where people can can find information about how to do that? Yes, there are, there are some uh, websites uh, that um, uh, that help write letters online, uh, which makes it uh, very convenient. Uh, so one is politzek.me, and uh, the other is kletechku.org. Uh, I think uh, I can share these uh, these links with you if you would be willing to to share them with uh, with Canadians who are your listeners. Uh, I can do this. Uh, we will put those links in the. Uh, description of the podcast so that folks who are who are listening can easily find and and take and use those links uh, i think that's a that's an excellent uh excellent way for people to engage and show their support uh and um, you know one of the things that i, I constantly want to want to point out to people is that uh, you are not powerless in the midst of uh, of these these kinds of uh, uh, events. It, it might it might seem on the face of it that uh, the Belarus is a country uh, far away that there are that there are great uh, political political forces going on. But uh, just as we talked earlier about how um, the the regime underestimated your presence, president, and uh, and 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 yet she was able to accomplish so much. I, I would say to people who are listening to this, don't underestimate the impact of action you will take uh, writing a letter, talking to your member of parliament and asking them to, to stand with the people of Belarus, uh, expressing support for a, for a political prisoner. Uh, none of us should underestimate our own capacity to make a difference when it comes to standing up for, for human rights, democracy, the rule of law, uh, both at home and also uh, around the world. Uh, so. So Valerie, thanks so much for your time today. Any any final final thoughts you want to share? Anything that that I've uh, I've missed in terms of asking or pointing out? Any any uh, any last words you have uh, about about this uh, critical situation? Yeah, probably something that goes uh, kind of follows your um, your words right now is that as soft as it sounds, solidarity is very very material. Uh, and the words of support, empathy uh, received by people in need, uh, they play a significant role. And they, they keep us going. They help us a lot, uh, especially those people who are deprived of everything behind the bars. Uh, so solidarity matters. Thank you very much for the invitation. Solidarity matters. Thank you so much uh, for, for being with us today. More importantly, for your important work and uh, and and. I am committed to continuing to stand with you in solidarity in Parliament, and I encourage uh, everybody listening to take those uh, those steps as well. Thank you very much uh, for listening. Uh, please leave a review somewhere, and we'll uh, we'll look forward to bringing you more episodes very soon. Thank you.